Welcome back to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. We're a weekly show that dives into the big issues affecting our city, our state, and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, here as always with the one and only Jeff Simmons. Great to be here with you, Jeff. Great to be here with you again, Celeste. And I was thinking as we were planning this show that this, we're going to see, maybe the callers will do this, but this might be the first show in quite a while where a certain someone's name is not mentioned at all because we're not having that daily uh, saturation of controversial news that happens. Absolutely. We are now starting a, a new administration. If I think I know where you're going with this, Jeff, and certainly a lot of news there. We now have a new president, Joe Biden, and vice president, Kamala Harris. And certainly they're doing a lot in the very first couple of weeks of the administration, a lot of it having to do with foreign affairs, the economy and so on, but specifically having to do with our continuing battle against coronavirus. So we're seeing the president asking people to mask up for the first 100 days of the administration. We're talking about better logistical plans to get vaccine out to people all across the United States, starting with people who are uh, particularly vulnerable or on the front lines of the pandemic. And what's been interesting is I've been reading a lot of stories recently uh, that are picking up about uh, with the recommendation of wearing two masks, uh, which is not something we heard as often last year. But now, I guess, with the increased uh, the different strains that we're uh, hearing about that uh, they're, they're cropping up in our country, uh, experts are now uh, suggesting more often that we wear two masks uh, here at home in the city, in New York City and in New York State. Uh, you know, there seems to be some improvement uh, to the, we're at that point where the governor has been saying that they might ha- be able to soon relax some of those restrictions. Yeah, we've seen some of that reporting, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo talking about, uh, you know, we are still not done with coronavirus, unfortunately, but, you know, he was quoted recently as saying that uh, he believes that we are at the end of the holiday spike period, at least, which uh, maybe doesn't sound like the most cheerful news. But if you think about where we have been, uh, certainly sounds like things are looking up. Some of the restrictions, not all of them, uh, indoor dining, for example, but some of the restrictions starting to be eased a little bit. Um, at the same time, of course, we're still seeing some resistance to people taking COVID-19 vaccine, even when it becomes more widely available. And uh, one thing I think I'd mentioned to you was I saw a poll that was out from the Association for a Better New York, and they found that, among other things, uh, New Yorkers of color were twice as likely as white New Yorkers to say that they don't have enough information about how safe and effective the vaccine is to make a decision about receiving it so that that remains a cause for concern. And we do see some uh, variations as well uh, across the five boroughs uh, where people are uh, planning to accept it and where they're not. And yeah, and we're going to get to the, our first guest in just a moment. But one of the issues that Celeste and I have talked about on the show has been uh, resistance among a number of folks, particularly uh, concerns within the uh, uh, minority communities uh, about getting vaccinated. There, there are a number of studies that have been out there now or surveys that have been out there now in which there are higher percentages of people of color who are saying that they do not uh, want to get vaccinated. And that's the type of uh, topic that I know our listeners uh, want to weigh in on. And later on during the show, during the second half, we're going to open up the phone lines uh, to be able to take your calls. I want to give you that number very quickly. Uh, so write it down, but don't call in now because we're going to get to our first guest. That number is 212-209-2877. So today on the program, we are going to be talking about coronavirus, but we're going to be talking about a very specific and very vulnerable population of people that has been affected, as well as the people around them. And those are people who are dealing with Alzheimer's disease. Um, We have government estimates that say more than 5.5 million Americans may have dementia that's caused by Alzheimer's. It's currently ranked as the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, but it might be as high as the 
third leading cause among older people. And if you know people with Alzheimer's, somebody in your family, a friend, memory loss, probably the most commonly recognized feature of this disease, but it can affect people in a lot of other ways. And it can be extremely difficult, not only for the person who is uh, afflicted with the disease, but for the family and the friends who are caring for them. And all of that gets much more complicated when you throw in a pandemic. So joining us now to discuss how coronavirus is affecting people and families dealing with Alzheimer's is Jennifer Reeder. She's the Director of Educational and Social Services for the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, and she has more than a decade of experience with family therapy, mediation, and advocacy for under-resourced communities. So Jennifer, welcome to Driving Forces. Thank you very much. So what can you tell us a little bit about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting people with Alzheimer's disease? You know, are there special concerns that are really related to this population? Sure. Well, I think, you know, when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, people who who are challenged by the symptoms of the disease, uh, you know, we find that once, once an individual is able to engage in very like, stimulating mind and body activities and especially social interaction, that can really help to slow the progression of the disease. So when you take all of that away, we're seeing that it really exacerbates the, the cognitive decline of the individual as well as withdrawal into themselves. Uh, you know, we're also seeing that individuals who live at home, uh, care partners, now all of the responsibility is on them to not only care for their loved one, but to also figure out ways to be able to stimulate the mind and the body. And, um, you know, with, with all of that, it can be very challenging for, for the care partner and what to do and, and how to support their loved one. And they have to make those difficult decisions about whether home health aides can come into the home or not. And if they choose to not do that, what's well, going to replace the care? And uh, Jennifer, this is Jeff. I have to say that, you know, as I was researching uh, stories about uh, looking up stories about this before the show, I started to get very emotional because I started to, I'm a very visual person and I was visualizing people who are in congregate care facilities, uh, you know, mm -hmm. who, uh, or may even be in their home alone and have caregivers and are just feeling so much more isolated at this time. Are there specific, are there differences you've been hearing in how this is affecting people who've been quarantining at home versus those who are in the congregate settings? Right. Well, so so at home, uh, you know, the the care partner and the individual, they have to start finding new routines uh, for their loved one, and it's really difficult for people with Alzheimer's disease to learn new routines. So there needs to be a lot of repetition there, and care partners now also have to, as I said, if they're not able to bring the uh, the home health aides into the home anymore. They have to figure out what's going to replace that care. Uh, you know, also, if it comes to a point where the individual may benefit from a long-term care facility, we're finding that the family members are very resistant to that because they know that once their loved one enters a long-term care facility, they may not be able to see them. So, you know, it's really difficult decisions that people are facing. So, and we're speaking with Jennifer Reeder of the Alzheimer's Foundation of America here on Driving Forces about sort of the intersection, the unfortunate intersection of coronavirus and Alzheimer's. And Jennifer, you know, maybe um, what have you been hearing from people in terms of ways that they have found to deal with, um, you know, maintaining that connection? Uh, if they mm -hmm. do have somebody who's in a, a congregate setting, um, you know, a lot of people, I, I personally, um, you know, I'm lucky to have two pretty healthy parents, but I have not seen them in over a year. They live far away and we are choosing not to travel, not to take those risks. Um, but we have other options, uh, FaceTime and phone calls and so on. How is that different for families that are coping with, with Alzheimer's and what do you, what do you sort of recommend for them? So we, uh, you know, we certainly do recommend that they try and keep in touch with their loved one as much as they possibly can. 
And, you know, whether, whether that is FaceTiming or phone calls, because FaceTiming can be extremely beneficial, but it can be also very confusing for, pe- for some people. So trying to figure out what works best for your loved one. And that's where I think having a good communication level with the people who work there, uh, who can be able to help you figure out what is best for your loved one, uh, such as care packages or having those phone calls. Uh, and when you put care packages together, thinking about the five senses, you know, like what what does your loved one enjoy most when it comes to touch? Are there different kinds of fabrics that they really enjoy? Are there different kinds, types of smells? Music is so very important. You know, we find that music therapy is one of the best types of therapies for people with Alzheimer's disease. So trying to connect in that way with your loved one is so important. Um, you know, and I think it's also really good, too, for people to feel like they can be an advocate for their loved one. You know, knowing what the grievance policies are at the long-term care facility, knowing when it's important to speak up for the care of your loved one. All of these things, I think, can help individuals feel more confident in, in being an advocate. So the the Alzheimer's Foundation has talked about the availability of virtual memory screenings, which seems very timely given the limitations on travel and healthcare services during the pandemic. What can you tell us about those services? So uh, virtual memory screenings, uh, it's a very simple and safe evaluation tool that it helps to check the memory and other different kinds of thinking skills. Uh, and candidate, it can really help people know if, if they need to Go and get some additional uh, screenings done by a physician. Uh, so it in no way takes away or diagnoses anything that a physician would do, uh, but it can be a very effective tool uh, in helping individuals, for one, know what their baseline is so that if you do get another virtual uh, memory screening, that you can see if there's any type of decline in, in your memory skills. So, uh, so, yeah, people can certainly call our toll-free number. It's 866-232-8484 and set up a virtual memory screening. Um, but it's a series of questions that are designed to test the memory, language skills, and thinking skills. And, Jennifer, maybe you can just give that number one more time so people have a chance to write it down if they'd like to have that. Absolutely. Uh, 866 232 8484. And that's also the same number for our helpline. Our helpline is we're, we're staffed by all licensed social workers. So anyone who has a question about Alzheimer's disease or a concern, anyone who needs guidance or just really just needs somebody to listen, our licensed social workers are there uh, seven days a week, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. and Saturday and Sunday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So Jeff brought up a point a little bit earlier that uh, I'd like to go back to just for a second. You know, for a lot of people sure. at every every stage of life, every every age group, every demographic, you know, there are a lot of people in the United States who really have felt um, this burden of isolation, of being quarantined, mm-hmm. even if it's with, uh, you know, whether it's with their family and they're not having interaction with friends or coworkers, but a lot of people who are going through this by themselves. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in some of the research, it suggests that, you know, depression, isolation sometimes is tied in in some ways uh, with Alzheimer's. You know, is there, are, are there aspects of this that people should be looking for, be aware of, not to be an alarmist, but, you know, we're going through such an unusual time uh, with this pandemic. Are there things that people should sort of watch out for in terms of self-care or care for their families in terms of changes in behavior or cognition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so self-care is so important. I think a lot of the times care partners tend to forget to care for themselves because they're so focused on their loved one. And we have to remember that, you know, it, it's, it's near impossible to care for someone else if we're not caring for ourselves. And it is, you know, we do always want to, we always do want to evaluate, you know, how our loved one is doing. So it is always good to have that, that baseline of, you know, what their appearance is like, if, if your loved one is able to continue to engage in activities that they enjoy, 
Uh, you know, we have our virtual community classes that are through our teal room. Uh, we offer activities and therapeutic programs. So anything like that where you can see that your loved one is enjoying, but if they're starting to decline and you're starting to see symptoms of depression, you know, it's, it's important to address that as soon as you start to see that. And Jennifer, you know, before the show started, I had been reading, uh, and Celeste and I will talk about this more in the show for our listeners later on about a new report that came out from the state attorney general here in New York uh, about uh, real seriously criticizing uh, uh, the state's handling of nursing homes during uh, during the pandemic. And what this just made me think of is. Uh, something that you said a little while ago about, you know, people should be able to advocate, uh, you know, mm-hmm. given your work, what are some of the issues that you feel, you know, uh, for people who are impacted by Alzheimer's in their family or with their friends or communities, what, where should they advocate? What should they advocate for amid this pandemic? What is needed? So I think it's, it, it certainly does depend on whether you are able to go to the facility and see your loved ones. Some people are able to at least stand outside the window or they have areas where you can safely visit your loved ones. So you, know, you always want to be seeing, you know, what the what your, the appearance of your loved one is like uh, if you're seeing a decline in that way at all. Uh, if you do have a concern about the care for your loved one, knowing what that grievance, what those grievance procedures are, uh, and always finding out your local ombudsman program. Uh, those are really important in state survey agencies because those are programs where you can reach out and, and they will do, they'll identify and investigate and also resolve any concerns that individuals may have for the care of their loved ones. So I and think, we just, you know, just oh, making sure to equip yourself on who to contact. Uh, we just have about two minutes left, Jennifer, and uh, of course, we, this is a much longer conversation that we would definitely love to have. Um, yeah. As as we sort of start to turn the corner, as things start getting somewhat better, we see some restrictions uh, being uh, being loosened up a bit, starting to see more distribution of vaccine. Uh, is there anything that people and families who are dealing with Alzheimer's should know about returning to a more uh, a more open way of living as New York and other states start to open up uh, post-pandemic or mid-pandemic? Um, well, I think, you know, as long as you possibly can continue to follow safety measures and follow the recommendations from the CDC, uh, because all of this is so new and, and we don't know, we don't know the future. So as long as we're able to continue to equip ourselves with these safety measures, I think that's what's most important. And I think a lot of the people can, a lot of people can feel resistant to taking their loved one out into the community. And so if, if that's something that needs to be done, or if you feel that your loved one needs a little bit of time outside, you know, making sure that, that you're equipping yourself with masks and when you come inside, washing your hands and, those, those types of measures can be very difficult for people with Alzheimer's disease. So learning how best to be able to manage that. And Jennifer, how can people find out more about the Alzheimer's Foundation and the work that you do? Sure. So I would highly recommend that uh, people go to our website. That's www.alzfdn.org. And as I said, you can always call our helpline. We also have support groups that we offer. Those are all via telephone, so people nationwide can join. Uh, we also have our professional trainings as well. I highly recommend that people check those out. They're not only for, we're able to provide continuing education credits to licensed social workers, but I think that it, a lot of care partners can gain knowledge from those trainings as well. And we have so many caregiver resources on our website. Great. Thank you, Jennifer Reeder of the uh, American Found- uh, Alzheimer's Foundation of America. Thanks for joining us today on WBAI's Driving Forces. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. 
So you're listening to WBAI New York, Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons every Thursday. And today we're talking about the intersection of Alzheimer's disease and the coronavirus pandemic. Um, last year, I had the opportunity to produce an interview series for WBAI. We called it New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. And one of the most, frankly, moving conversations I had in that series was with a gentleman named named David German from Long Island. And he spoke to me about caring for his wife, whose name is Linda, during the pandemic and how that had changed their lives. Uh, we're going to welcome back, welcome him back to the program in just a moment. But first, let's take a moment and listen to that original interview with David German. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is David German. I live in Watermill, New York. My wife, she um, has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It's got to be about six years now. I am the main caregiver. I have not been going to the city. Our business is closed. So it's really a 24-hour-a-day I am taking care of my wife. Everything from bathrooms to feeding and every minute that she is awake, you have to be very alert. Things can go wrong so fast with Alzheimer's. It's trying to keep things as normal as they ever were before. At the stage Linda is at now, she does not understand the uh, virus. So we've had this conversation many times, but she doesn't understand why we can't see other people. On the flip side of that, she's happy that I am here nonstop. Whenever um, I have to go to the city for work, it's disruptive uh, for Linda. That, I, that I'm not going into the city now, is been a positive for her. We hold hands all the time, and I think that's a, a very important thing. The physical contact, the smiling, the never, for the caretaker, never get upset in front of the person with Alzheimer's. If you get mad and, and raise your voice to the Alzheimer's patient, they will not remember it. But you, as a caregiver, will never forget it. It will always be on your mind. It, it is so devastating. I cry sometimes. So devastating to the family, to everyone involved. Don't ever try to do this yourself. Get a hold of the Alzheimer's Foundation. Use their helpline. Speak to people. Get all your friends. We... This, this makes me cry. Our friends have been phenomenal. They, you know, right now they can't come to the house, but they're always there. Our daughter's wonderful. She lives um, with her boyfriend in New Orleans, but comes up as much as possible. We FaceTime every day. Get your friends, your family. Get, and I always say, you know, even if... Even if um, you got to make people feel guilty that they didn't call. Go ahead and do that. Keep everybody involved. Because if you try to do it yourself, you're not going to make it. I think the thing, any, any family involved in this, the only thing you have is hope. I'd say we're going through it together. And um, she really appreciates it. At least a few times a day, she'll, she'll give me a big smile or say, I love you. She won't remember my name, but she'll, I'll do something. You know, we're holding hands. Um, I'm helping her go to the bathroom or whatever. And um, she'll say, I love you. That's a home run for me. That's enough. Just that, that reward. My wife just raised her hand because I think she wants to talk to me. Just say hello. Just hello. Linda? I don't know anything. Okay, just say hello. That's all. Who is it? It's a, it's a radio interview. Okay. Okay? 
That's that was Linda. <laughs> David German lives on Long Island. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. So you are listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. This is Driving Forces. I'm your co-host, Jeff Simmons, and you just heard from Celeste Katz, who's also joining me today, of course, as a co-host by her interview uh, with David German. We've been focusing on Alzheimer's disease today, and we're hoping to have David on the line in a few moments to be able to just find out how things are going in his home uh, since Celeste last talked with him. And I believe we have him on the phone now. So, David, welcome back to WBAI. Thank you for joining us. How uh, are you doing and how is Linda doing? What has life been like since uh, we last spoke to you for that interview? Well, uh, Linda's disease has progressed uh, quite a bit. It's gotten um, much more difficult. She, her vision, uh, um, Alzheimer's affects all five senses. So uh, her vision has become very narrow, just a tunnel vision. So when she walks, I basically hold on to her. Or for the few hours a day when a caregiver comes in, um, everybody is very cognizant of how fast things can go wrong. Um, as the disease progresses, um, just so many different things happen. Her appetite is completely changed. It's very hard finding food for her to eat. Um, the pandemic um, has affected the amount of visits she gets. We actually have two good friends uh, Alexandria and Edmonds to try to uh, see her uh, on a daily basis. We'll normally meet outside and take a photo, and it puts a smile on her face because then she can look at the photos afterwards. Um, but the, it's so difficult for not only her, but also for the caregivers. The um, patience is really difficult because you're, di- you're really doing everything now. She's lost. Uh, bathroom control, and these are all expected. And yet, even though it's expected, it's very, very difficult to handle, both for the person that is terribly affected with Alzheimer's and for the people around. So you end up having less pandemic plus. It's very difficult, very honestly, for people to come over and see this. Um, you're seeing somebody, and Linda was a top executive in the fashion industry and super smart. You're seeing somebody who was so special and so pretty and, and nice, and now they really have very little control over what they're doing. So, David, and I'm glad to welcome you back to the program. I really uh, I learned a lot from talking to you the first time um, when we spoke last year. And I just wanted to ask, you know, how are you? How are you doing? I mean, everybody has been super stressed out or frightened with this pandemic. How are you doing and what are you doing to take care of yourself? I spend at least a couple times a week, which I for me is a lifesaver because it's just getting out that energy and trying to be a little bit more healthy. It's, I would have to say, I don't, I would tell anybody in my situation or their situation, whether somebody's in stage one or stage two of Alzheimer's or stage six, like Linda is, you do have to take care of yourself. You really do. I try to uh, see friends whenever I can. I, I'm back, you know, our business is open, we vary hours and all. So I'm back in the city two nights a week, and um, those nights I always try to see friends and discuss, you know, what's going on. And they all are so wonderful. You know, they all um, get involved and try to help me. You know, they I'm sorry, I'm crying, but they understand that the stress that's put on you. There's another thing here, which is, I think is very interesting for the people listening. 
for the last year in almost every facility with dementia slash Alzheimer's patients, no one's been allowed to visit. And I think that is such a detriment to the people with Alzheimer's. It's unbelievable. When you know, when you think of that, like Linda has seen me every day, she can't FaceTime anymore. She can't um, look on the computer because she'll just walk away. She can't focus on it. So, so the real interactions are face to face and and hugging and things like that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wish the pandemic would end and the, and the vaccine would work. Because if and when Linda has to go into a facility, I have to be there. I have to visit. And I can't imagine what it's like for the families that can't visit. And I can't imagine what it's, I can't imagine actually what it's like for the people with Alzheimer's. It's very detrimental because they're getting no stimulation from their family. So you are listening, just for one moment, David, I want to step away and let folks know they're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. This is Driving Forces. We're also streaming live at uh, WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. David, you know, your story has moved me so much in listening to Celeste's segment before you came on. And then again today, I get very emotional listening to this, and I really appreciate that you're taking the time to talk with us. You mentioned that that Linda is in stage I think you said stage six for people who for people who have a loved one who are in the early stages of Alzheimer's and facing this amid the pandemic what type of advice or counsel can you offer to them uh, about you know some of the challenges that you have faced how can they learn from your experience well the, the first thing um, I really learned was try to keep them as uh, keep the uh, person with Alzheimer's as active as possible. Linda, in the first few stages, spun a couple times a week. What it does is it pours blood, uh, blood into your brain and actually slows the disease. It keeps you much more uh, alert. So that's a very important thing. There are drugs. The last drug that was put out for Alzheimer's in the past, you know, they, they don't do much. Let's put it that way. But People should go to their neurologist at each stage. At the beginning stages, uh, they give one drug. I I don't want to mention names because I'm not a doctor. But um, they give one drug. A little further on, they give another drug. It stimulates, um, you know, the neural pathways. But it's, it's very limited to what the drugs do. So do the exercise. Keep the person as active as possible. If they like music, Play music around them. Um, they like to dance. Get them dancing a little bit. Linda still, every once in a while, will move around and dance. Um, so those are the things you can do. Alzheimer's, right now, there is no cure, as I think most of you listeners know, and it is a progressive disease, and it eventually it ends up killing the neurons, which will kill a person. So one of the things I really stress is for both the caregiver and the patient, do as much as you can early on because this thing will not stop. It will keep progressing. And when it does, I'm sorry, guys, I'm letting my daughter But But when it does, it's, it's horrific. Each stage just keeps getting worse and worse. There's no, there's no slowing down. It might, you might plateau for a month or two, but um, at the end of the day, it just keeps progressing. So my advice is from the beginning and in the beginning, do as much as you can. And listen, right at the beginning, if you get a, if you get a uh, diagnosis and, and you know it's going to keep going on, do some travel. Do some things you would hold off doing. Linda was early onset at 62. But um, do, do things you, you won't be able to do down the road. So, David, one of the things that we talked about in our, our first interview was, um, you know, 
there was there was some trouble explaining to Linda about the fact that we were in the middle of a pandemic and there was a reason why it wasn't safe to see our families, see our friends. You know, you talked about uh, your daughter uh, would have had to travel very far to to see you and right. so on. Um, have you uh, have you been able to explain uh, any more about basically why no. we're still staying inside, why this is taking so long, no, and what's what's um, happening? I, you know, as I was saying, the, the, all five senses get affected. One thing that gets affected pretty dramatically is the cold. So now that it's winter, now that it's okay. winter, she um, she likes staying inside. But um, no, she doesn't understand it at all. She can't wear a uh, face mask. She just rips it right off. She just can't do it. So when you get that far down the road, um, they, they stop asking. She has no idea there's a pandemic. She has no idea people are, are stuck inside. She just knows um, she wants to go to sleep. She knows she's hungry. Um, the bathroom is, is not, has become a problem. The bathrooms become a problem, and um, so you then deal with that as, as its own issue. You know, you take one thing at a time, and um, that's all you can do. You you try, and trust me, as, as I said in the first, you know, in the first interview, it is unbelievably frustrating. And as the disease progresses, it gets much more frustrating. So don't take it out on the person. The person is doing that. The Alzheimer's person is doing the best they can. They're trying their hardest, but this disease is making them confused. It's making them sad. Linda will cry over nothing a lot. It's making them sad. It's making them confused. But you always have to remember, they are doing the best they can. So if you're mad, and it's happened to me, I will leave the room and just go, you know, why? And but don't do it in front of the person because, as I said in the first interview, they're going to forget it because they have Alzheimer's. They won't remember it five minutes later, but you will remember it your whole life. Is there is there anything else that we should know about you know is there is there anything sort of positive I mean and look I, I'm sympathetic to everything you're describing my family has been affected by Alzheimer's I have seen somebody that I love very dearly um, deteriorate with this disease it is relentless and I have True. nothing but respect for for what you are for what you are going through and what Linda is going through I mean is there well, is there anything that that you can tell people about how to to sort of not give up when it's incredibly hard yeah. it really is yes right now there's no cure so that um, I just want to lay out there however you have some of those brilliant scientists um, through the Alzheimer's Foundation, which has been absolutely wonderful to us and our family. And I really wanted to say that. They, they are there. They have all these programs. Um, if I need advice on anything, I can call call them up. You can call the helpline. Um, you know, I'm just kind of looking around for places that Linda might, you know, end up at, at a facility. They will help you with recommendations. They will make phone calls. It just This is a wonderful, caring group. Where there's a positive is I got through them. I got in touch with um, Anne-Marie Langone um, Winter, which I think is one of the leaders in research on Alzheimer's um, cures or vaccines. Uh, a lot of it looks like it's going to be gene therapy. So it might not happen in five years, it might not happen in 10 years, but I really believe they're going in the right direction. As um, your viewers might, oh, not you, your listeners might know, all of the drugs in the last 20 years have failed um, to really, they failed to make, make it to market. And you don't blame the drug companies, they spend billions of dollars trying to find a cure or, or something that would lessen the effects. But... 
I really think um, that that there are brilliant scientists out there that are going in the right direction. You know, where it's gene therapy. To give you very quickly, um, mm. there's a bad gene, APOE4. If you, Linda has two of them. Two out of two is very bad. It probably, it, 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 in one month, you could have said if she lives long enough, um, they can go into the blood now and find it. And um, if you live long enough, you're probably going to get Alzheimer's. So, but the thing would be, going forward, if they can take with gene therapy, change it into a good drug or mm-hmm. a good uh, gene, you would end up uh, maybe cracking this. So is there hope in the future? Yes. Is it right around the corner? I can't say, but it's, I doubt it. David, I just want to thank you again for joining us here on WBAI and sharing your story and sharing Linda's story. I think it's it's really important, and I appreciate your your candor and your and your bravery and your kindness. And I I just want to say, if anybody um, ever wants to text me, you uh, you can give out my email, text, or call me. I I I would try to help anybody because I know what it's like. And I hate people. I hate when people are so frustrated they don't know what to do. So if I can help even in just the smallest way, I'll gladly do it. Thank you so much. And and if people want to reach out to us at the program, we can we can try to find a a way to make that happen. But David German, thank you again in all sincerity for joining us today on WBAI. We really appreciate it. it. And, and you guys have a good night. You too. Thank you. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here every Thursday with Jeff Simmons. And we've been talking about coronavirus and its intersection with Alzheimer's disease. And now this is the part of the program where we would like to hear from you. Is your family coping with Alzheimer's disease or another chronic condition, either you or a friend, a loved one? And how has that affected your life? Our phone lines are open. Give us a call. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. We'll give you a moment to get your calls in and we'll be right back. So scared to face my fear 
And you're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York. I'm Jeff Simmons, joined by my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. As she noted before you heard from Adele, we've been talking about how the coronavirus has affected families who are dealing with Alzheimer's. Uh, We would like to hear from you. Phone lines are open, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Yeah, and we heard a little bit earlier from Jennifer Reeder of the Alzheimer's Foundation of America talking about ways that people can cope when we're all in isolation, when we are under uh, stay-at-home or uh, slowly relaxing stay-at-home uh, orders uh, as we await the uh, wider distribution of vaccine. And as Jeff mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, now hearing some uh, pretty pretty worrisome information about whether uh, the rates of sickness and death in New York's nursing homes may have been dramatically undercounted uh, because there, for example, there may have been some differences in how those figures were tallied by whether people from nursing homes were transferred to hospitals and whether the mortality rates were, were sort of calculated that way. But if you are dealing with a situation like that, if you have a loved one who is with you or is in a congregate care facility or in a hospital, give us a call 212-209-2877-212-209-2877. And that report that Celeste just mentioned came out from New York State Attorney General uh, Tish James earlier today. I would recommend strongly, if this is something you care about, to go to the AG's website. I I believe it's ag.ny.gov. I don't have the website in front of me, but it is getting widely covered. It is considered a major blow to the Cuomo administration. The State Department of Health has come under fire because of this. Among the key findings, nursing home deaths may have been undercounted by as much as 50%. And that report found that there was a significant lack of compliance with health protocols at nursing homes, and that put residents at risk, and facilities had lower staffing levels. That had lower staffing levels, saw higher fatality rates. One other key point I do want to mention, not from this report, but given the topic uh, that we've talked about today, this has been covered that there has been there was a significant, there was a surge in New York across the nation at levels uh, of deaths due to Alzheimer's and dementia above normal amid the pandemic. This has been uh, widely reported. I'm going to give a little hat tip here to the uh, Albany Times Union, uh, where I pulled some of that uh, information from. But if you that's something that has been uh, uh, significant uh, in in its coverage, by the way, I was correct, ag.ny.gov. And you will be able to find uh, that report that came out from the attorney general today. We are ready to take your calls at any point. If you want to give us a call, 212-209-2877, is the number to call. And while we're waiting for calls to come in, this is probably a good moment uh, to remind everybody that we are listener-supported WBAI New York. We rely on your contributions to continue bringing free speech radio to New Yorkers and streaming live at WBAI.org, of course. If you want to keep hearing stories about these kinds of important health issues, coronavirus, Alzheimer's disease, things that affect real New Yorkers in a real way, please consider making a contribution. You can make a one-time contribution. You can also become what's called a BAI buddy, which is a sustaining contribution once a month in the name of your favorite program. Maybe it's Driving Forces, City Watch, one of our musical or cultural programs. The way you can find out more about this is going to our website, WBAI.org, and just clicking on Ways to Donate on the right-hand side. We really do appreciate your support for Free Speech Radio. Please consider becoming a donor in the most generous amount that you can. Uh, This is a really, really important time as we have certainly learned over the last four or five years, uh, accurate information, timely information, really important. Please consider uh, becoming part of the BAI family by making a donation. And one of the topics that Celeste and I have talked about on a previous show that still is out there in the discourse is 
the uh, number of folks or the percentages of folks in communities that are saying that they just do not want to get vaccinated. We'll take your calls on that if you'd like as well. I mean, Celeste had pointed out to me about a new poll from ABNY, the Association for a Better New York, that found that uh, New Yorkers of color uh, were twice as likely as white New Yorkers to say they don't have enough information about how safe and effective the vaccine is to make a decision about receiving it. We're curious why you think that is. Call us and let us know, because th- this could be due to a host of reasons. Uh, we have, you know, we probably could tell you what we think, but we want to hear from you. Absolutely. And we have heard from callers on, uh, you know, a lot of the programs that we've done this have actually generated more calls. Today is a little bit slow. Certainly there's a lot going on in the world, so no, no fault there. But, you know, we are seeing people having concerns. And I would just like to point out that some of our more recent guests have specifically addressed this issue of concern about or distrust of the vaccine, particularly in communities of color. We had Hazel Dukes, for example, of the NAAC. CP New York State Conference. We had public advocate Jamani Williams on uh, just the other week talking about this, and they are openly acknowledging, yes, there are concerns in communities of color about the vaccine, about uh, whether it's safe, whether it's effective, who is getting it, who is getting it first, and so on. But we have, uh, you know, among all those public officials, people withstanding uh, in public life, in the community, we have had everybody encouraging people people to sure do the research but get the vaccine if you feel differently about it we are always uh, we are always interested in hearing from you only have a few moments left but 212-209-2877 is the number to call yeah and a lot of this is i mean rooted in historical injustices uh you know but if you look at the you know if you look further out now this can be an opportunity for the federal government whether it's through an education campaign, the, the, here's where my opinions come through, Celeste, uh, <laughs> for the federal government, for the states and for the city governments, for people to demonstrate accountability and trustworthiness if they ever want to gain back that trust. I mean, and overarching, build up health literacy. People need to have trust in the system. And frankly, they, don't, they have not for some time, and understandably. Absolutely. So, Jeff, I know you have uh, an announcement to make about uh, your next program coming up. I know that we're winding down this uh, this edition of Driving Forces, but what do you have coming up for us on Sunday? So uh, it's not in front of me right now, but I am almost done with a book called The Making of the American Creative Class uh, by Shannon Clark, an author. It is a walk through history. Uh, starting in the beginning of the last century. I'm only up to the late 60s right now. I'm going to finish this tonight. It's a walk through history about the union and labor movement in New York as white collar workers, like those in the media, such as radio. BAI has not been mentioned yet, but I still got some chapters to go. Uh, Sought to improve working conditions, much more. The author, Shannon Clark, is going to join me at 10 a.m. on Sunday on City Watch. And then I'm going to have on, right after him, Susan uh, De Carava, the president of the News Guild of New York, who's going to talk about the New Yorker walkout that just recently happened. And then wrapping it up is going to be an expert on disaster preparedness, which many organizations do not do or have not done. And then over this last year, realized, Celeste, that they should have. And that uh, Daniel Holly, CEO of Common Impact, will be rounding out the show this Sunday. That sounds like a packed show. It sounds very good. And uh, we'll look forward to it. We want to thank today's guests, Jennifer Reeder from the Alzheimer's Foundation of America and David German from our series New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, which you can still find on WBAI.org. Thanks, as always, of course, to our engineer, Reggie. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it on WBAI.org. And please check out Driving Forces on SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook. So stay tuned right now to WBAI. We'll be back next time. Until then, see you on the radio.